Circuit 6, Extrasensory Intelligences. Things get weirder now. Circuit 6 is the deep end. The essence of Circuit 6 is the experience of encountering what seem to be separate autonomous intelligences that aren't perceivable via regular sense perception. In other words, this means seeing and or hearing entities that others can't. Sometimes these experiences are called hallucinations. A hallucination is defined as an experience that seems sensory, it has an auditory or visual aspect to it, but the experience did not happen in the objective, external, physical world. When circuit 6 is activated, these seemingly independent entities engage in some form of communication. This is certainly weird stuff and we'll go through a lot of examples of these experiences. Robert Anton Wilson concluded that in order to properly understand and explore Circuit 6, one must put aside the question of whether these experiences are totally objective or real in any worldly sense. These experiences seem to be both inside of you and outside of you at the same time. This is the cover of a book by the controversial Dr. John C. Lilly, who I'll be discussing in detail later. For now, I want to mention his very appropriate name for these entities, intraterrestrial. As exotic as Circuit 6 sounds, there are probably several Circuit 6 experiences you can relate to. This silly meme speaks to a deep truth about our experience of being a human being. As much as we like to say, I thought this, or this was my idea, this simply isn't how thought works. Thoughts aren't ours. Thoughts occur to us. They happen to us. This is why so many of us experience intrusive, annoying, compulsive thinking. We experience constant mind chatter that's not fully in our control. I'd say the voice in our head is itself a form of Circuit 6 experience. It's just we don't recognize it as such because it's been accepted as part of our story of me. It's been normalized in status quo society. We all have a thinking process going on inside of us, providing us thoughts that we don't consciously ask for. This happens all the time. Dreams. What are they? No one is exactly sure, although there are plenty of scientific theories. I'm more interested in looking at dreams subjectively from our first-person experience. Dreams are something like immersive virtual reality experiences. These experiences seem to happen in a state of existence that is very different from waking life. When dreaming, we seem to step out of regular time and space and we are transported into an experience that is not quite under our control. In dreams, we interact with entities which are often representations of people that we know and sometimes there are people that we've never met in waking life. These entities seem perfectly real during the experience. They operate like independent actors, often saying and doing unexpected things. From a personal, subjective point of view, you have to consider the fact that you most often have no conscious control over what is happening in the dream and what these entities are doing or saying. If you can't control them, can you really say they're just your imagination or just a part of you? Sigmund Freud and Jung, his close collaborator for many years, both pointed to dreams as being an extremely important form of communication. They can often provide the dreamer with a powerful symbolic message. 
Both of these founding fathers of modern psychology saw the dream as an essential entry point to understanding the human mind. Prophets, mystics, and religious seers from almost every religion and culture that we know of point to the importance of dreams. The Talmud, a central Jewish text, says that a dream uninterpreted is like a letter unopened. The Christian Bible references over a dozen dreams and visions. There's also the mythical Chinese Taoist sage Zhuangzi, who had a dream of a very vivid experience of being a butterfly. After he awoke, he was never sure if he was a man dreaming he was a butterfly or a butterfly dreaming he was a man. Also related to dreaming is the subject of daydreams. I don't have much to say about daydreams except that I found they seem to also occur without conscious volition. Sometimes I'm in the middle of doing something or saying something and suddenly a memory or an imagined scenario arises in my awareness. I didn't ask for that, it just sort of happened. C.G. Young would likely argue that these involuntary fantasies convey some deeper meaning if explored properly. As with many topics I'm covering in this talk, a well-researched lecture on dreams could be days long, so I'll, I'll move on. Hypnagogia is the experience of a transitional state between wakefulness and sleep. The opposite transitional state from sleep into wakefulness is officially called hypnopompia. But hypnagogia is regularly used in a general sense to apply to both, so that's the term that I'll use. Hypnagogia has been recognized as an important aspect of human experience for thousands of years. Early references to hypnagogia are to be found in writings of some Greek thinkers like Aristotle. In hypnagogic states, sights and sounds are experienced. They seem real yet ethereal. Some people listen to hypnagogic messages and visions for tidbits of wisdom. You can even Google techniques for hypnagogic problem solving. Personally speaking, hypnagogic states have played an important role in my life over the past 10 years. I can confidently say I wouldn't be giving this talk if it wasn't for the guidance, ideas, and visions that I have experienced in hypnagogic states. Parasomnia is a term for other kinds of phenomenon that happen between wakefulness and sleep, like sleep paralysis. Sleep paralysis is the experience of being awake but unable to move. It is as if the body is still asleep but your conscious awareness is awake. During these transitions you may be able to open your eyes but unable to move or speak for a few seconds up to a few minutes. This can be a very unpleasant experience. Some people may feel pressure on their chest or feel like they're suffocating. Many people report seeing a demon or entity in the room with them during this experience. Sometimes the entity sits on their chest. Sometimes the experiencer notices an entity of the opposite sex attempting and sometimes succeeding to have sex with them as they're laying there paralyzed and helpless. So it's no surprise that a feeling of dread and intense fear is a common part of the sleep paralysis experience. This phenomenon has been documented for ages as you can see in the 1781 painting The Nightmare. The word nightmare is derived from the Old English word mare, meaning mythological demon or goblin who torments others with frightening dreams. Sleep paralysis is very common and there are now many self-deprecating memes. I've got some anecdotal encounters with sleep paralysis to share. 
Uh, one time I awoke opening my eyes and I realized that I was unable to move. I saw a dark shadow woman at my door holding a butcher knife. I felt intense fear and I couldn't move but I told myself she was not actually there. It was just sleep paralysis. I had been going through a period of stress and I'm glad I recognized what was happening before I panicked. Years later, a friend told me that she saw a man in her room. He was shooting blue energy from his hands and it was aimed directly at her crotch. Then he flew out the window. She was not prone to such experiences, so it was understandably very concerning to her. Next are idiosyncratic perceptions. This is a term for perceptual experiences in waking life that seem to have no objective reality. These experiences are commonly had by people with no underlying evidence of pathology. In other words, healthy people have them very often. Uh, way more people have idiosyncratic perceptions than have serious mental disorders. As common as idiosyncratic perceptions are, there is actually no scientific consensus on what they are. There are many inconclusive theories. Paracousia is a form of hallucination that involves perceiving sounds without any external auditory stimulus. British journalist John Ronson did a BBC Radio 4 piece many years ago on the subject of people hearing voices. He and several others admitted to hearing voices in their youth. Listening to this actually reminded me that when I was a child, I often heard entire like group conversations, especially when I was concentrating on a task like a household chore or doing homework. As I grew older, this went away and I forgot about it. Apparently, this is what happens to many people. In the UK, there's an organization called The Voice Collective. They claim that research indicates one in five young people under the age of 13 and one in 12 of older teens have had experiences of hearing voices or seeing things that are not there physically. And again, this goes away most of the time as they get older. There is the well-known phenomenon of children having imaginary friends or conversing with people that no one else can see. Other common forms of auditory hallucinations are those that happen in combat situations. High altitude climbers also experience them, and so do those in solitary confinement. Apparently, if you're suffering from severe sleep deprivation, hallucinations in general are pretty much guaranteed. And this experience is considered less concerning than it was in previous decades. It is now at least slightly better understood that the mere presence of a hallucination does not predict mental health deterioration. Think of a hallucination as if it were like a, a cough. A cough could just be a cough or it could be indicative of a disease. So similarly, a hallucination is an experience that may or may not be linked to a disease. Even if you haven't had the experience of a hallucination, you may relate to the experience of having an earworm, uh, not a literal worm in your ear. I'm referring to songs that get stuck in your head. Having a song stuck in one's head isn't considered mental illness. What's fascinating to me is the autonomy of hallucinatory activity. These voices or visual entities often have a personality. They seem to have their own agency, similar to the entities we encounter in dreams. But if hallucinatory intrusion becomes intrusive in one's waking life, this certainly can be a symptom of mental illness. Immersive hallucinations occur frequently in psychiatric conditions such as schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, post-traumatic disorder, and borderline personality disorder, as well as other illnesses like dementia and, and Parkinson's. I'm about to share some interesting stories 
of people and their mental illness-induced hallucinations. But while these are interesting stories, mental illness should not be romanticized. The experience of mental illness can cause great distress and psychological harm, as well as possibly lead to physical harm for oneself and others. This section is not in any way meant to minimize that. The photo with the man uh, with the scarf there is the Nobel Prize winning mathematician John Nash, who was depicted in the movie A Beautiful Mind. His real story was complicated and less hopeful than the movie version was, but it is true that he never fully overcame his hallucinations, but rather continued his work despite him hearing voices and having his peace of mind constantly intruded by paranoid thoughts. Daniel Paul Schrieber was a German judge in the 1800s who famously was diagnosed with mental illness. He was hearing messages from God. He thought God would transform him into a woman so that, as God's partner, he could give birth to a new race of humanity. There were little men who lived on Schrieber's eyelids. He had visions of many heavenly and underworld realms. In 1900, Schrieber lost the legal right to manage his own life. He lost control of his financial affairs and he lost the ability to check out of an asylum. Since Schrieber was a lawyer and judge, he knew that his best hope of freedom was a legal challenge to the order placing him under state control. He wrote a book called Memoirs of My Nervous Illness, an influential book in the history of psychiatry and psychoanalysis. Memoirs of My Nervous Illness was meant to be a foundation to his legal appeal. He argued that despite his hallucinations, his intellect was not clouded. Schrieber wrote in a rational, academic, and legal prose, specifically to demonstrate his clarity of thought. And Schrieber was successful in demonstrating his ability to think rationally, so the legal order placing him in the asylum was rescinded. He gained control of his life again. Now, Schrieber continued to have problems in his life and he never disavowed his visions or experiences. He simply proved that he could manage aspects of his life rationally regardless of what he was going through. So looking at this case through an 8th circuit yoga lens, I view Schrieber as a man who had a dysfunctional relationship with circuit 6 activation, but he still had a highly functioning and well-educated rationalistic circuit 3 working very well. Journalist John Ronson interviewed a man who was hospitalized on the verge of death. Over the course of several days, this man interacted with another patient in his hospital ward. This was an African man. When the patient recovered from his illness, he learned that the African man never actually existed. The patient had hallucinated every interaction with the African man. Ronson interviewed a woman who began hearing a voice when she joined college. This voice would narrate her activities as she went about her day. When medical professionals expressed concern about this voice, they placed her in an institution for treatment. Then the voice became harsh and negative. It multiplied into various voices. After years of traditional treatment and the worsening of her condition, she thought she'd never live a normal life again. Then she joined a program that took a different approach to treatment. This program taught her to make peace with her voices. At the time of the interview, the voices had become friendly and helpful. She stated that even after her difficult journey, she would not want to get rid of them. It's commonly understood that hallucinatory voices tend to be nastier in Western countries due to the experiencer's resistance to them. Beloved and influential mythologist 
Joseph Campbell told the story of a Native American tribe and how they handled the powerful schizophrenic visions of a young man in the tribe. The tribe acted out the schizophrenic's vision out of respect and to appease nature. This act apparently facilitated the young man's healing. Sometimes a circuit six experience is subtle. It's not always as obvious as hearing a voice or seeing someone who isn't physically there. Many traditions speak of seeing an inner light or hearing musical pieces or seeing quick flashes of mental imagery. And going back to the theme of higher circuit art, circuit five art is clearly inspired by the heart and inspires the heart. When circuit six is activated, the experiencer gets the sense that the inspiration for the art comes from somewhere else. It flows through you, but it's not quite yours. This experience of channeling art and music is well known among creatives. The Beatles' Yesterday is arguably the greatest pop song of all time by several standards. Its legacy is cemented in music history. This song famously came to Paul McCartney in Hypnagogia. He says he woke up one day and just heard the song playing in his head. He got out of bed, went over to the piano, and transcribed it. Another beloved Beatles song, Let It Be, was also a Circuit Six inspiration. McCartney's deceased mother visited him in a dream and gave him advice. He refers to her as Mother Mary in the song. Before I got into any of this subject matter, I experienced this sort of Circuit Six activation myself, and I found it really bizarre how the content just flowed through me. It felt like I had tapped into a stream of information. It was really surprising. This is how the ebook I wrote came about, and I'm sure some of you listening could relate to this.、Uh, the Muse is a well-known female characterization of this artistic inspiration. The Muse is a representation of a Circuit Six activation. She'll actually play a larger role in this talk as we move from Circuit Six to Circuit Seven. Here's Homer conflicted, trying to decide between his inner angel and inner devil. I'm sure we've all seen some variation of this concept before. It's a very common and old motif. The early Christian book, The Shepherd of Hermas, thought to be written around A.D. 140 or 150, has a reference to the idea of two angels. There are angels within man, one of righteousness and the other of inequity. Perhaps you've had experiences hearing your conscience or your intuition telling you something. I would say this is a circuit six phenomenon. Circuit six is the source of what we typically would call women's intuition. Here again, we find the recurring theme of wisdom and inspiration being feminine in nature. A few years ago, I took a class led by Raymond Moody and Lisa Smart. Moody was a medical doctor as well as a philosophy professor. He is well known for his work as a pioneer in the field of near-death experiences, and Smart, in many ways, is continuing his work. They speak of the deathbed experiences of dying individuals. These include deathbed visions, often involving loved ones or ethereal, otherworldly beings. It isn't rare to hear that deceased family members or deceased friends have arrived to encourage a dying person to let go of this world and move on towards something else. Sometimes the dying take well to these visitors; other times they are resistant. Sometimes they start off resistant 
and then eventually let go. Viktor Frankl, a survivor of the Holocaust and author of the famous book Man's Quest for Meaning, told the story of a dying woman. He was attending to her and she said she was having a conversation with a tree outside the window. The tree told her, quote, I am here, I am here, I am eternal life, end quote. Psychiatrist Elizabeth Kubler-Ross is best known for her work with the dying and introducing the five stages of grief to the world. Lesser known, I think, is that she became very bitter at the end of her life, saying the work she had done for 40 years was a waste. But one thing she never took back was a firm belief that the dying came in contact with deathbed visitors from another realm. And she herself felt she was in communication with her patients after their deaths. She called them her spooks. Deathbed experiences were apparently considered very common before heavy sedation was introduced in the 20th century. In our class, Moody shared that the ancient Greeks wrote about the phenomenon of the swan song, or a final performance. This is a phrase we use to this day. A dying person would sometimes break into poetry or song right before death. In Japan, you have a tradition of death poem, a farewell poem written by a dying person. Dr. Moody says that he's been personally told of cases where a dying person had zero interest in poetry or song, but nevertheless recited poetry or sang on their deathbed. Smart provided those of us in the class with a copy of her book, Words at the Threshold, which shares a few anecdotal stories where families report that a dying loved one said startling or unique things before dying. Deathbed sayings are sometimes irrational and nonsensical, sometimes uncharacteristic, sometimes they contain deep meaning, and sometimes it's a mixture of all those things. These all sound like examples of Circuit 6 to me. I have personally found all of this very interesting, uh, but I didn't make too much of it. Until recently, uh, there was a situation in my family that altered my perspective on Moody and Smart's work, uh, and this tale will lead us deeper into Circuit 6 territory. My grandmother had been placed into a facility for elderly care due to her health deteriorating in the year before her death. Family members caring for her reported that she began speaking nonsense. After she passed away, I found out that she would repeat a phrase over and over again. She seemed frightened and agitated while repeating the phrase. My family said it was as if she was seeing something scary or something scary was happening to her. The phrase she repeated often was Kali, Kali, Kalika, Kalika, Kalika. So there's something to that effect. This image is the standard depiction of Kali, the Hindu tantric goddess. She's a figure that I'm intimately familiar with. Um, there's a lot of mythology and symbolism related to her, which I won't go into. Uh, and honestly, I can't really speak to at an expert level anyways. Uh, for me, the most essential thing to know about Kali is that her role in Hinduism is typically understood as something like a tough, fierce mother. She loves all of us, but as a fierce mother, she cuts away our attachments to the world and sometimes pretty severely. This is tough love, the kind of tough mom that says, I'm doing this for your own good. Kali loves you, but she can be pretty darn scary. My grandmother was a devout Catholic living in a small Hispanic community all her life. I'm pretty sure she knew nothing of Kali. I can't imagine her even 
encountering an image of Kali in almost a hundred years of her life, she did pray to Mother Mary, the biblical mother of Jesus Christ who is revered in Catholicism. My grandmother prayed to Mary every day. One could say Mother Mary was the central figure in her life. Apparently this started when she was in her 30s. My grandmother was hospitalized at the time, I believe with tuberculosis and spent a lot of time in the hospital. Uh, one night she said she had a vision of Mother Mary who kissed her on the forehead shortly after she was cured and released from the hospital. So my grandmother credited her healing to the Mother Mary. So twice in her life, my grandmother was facing declining health and has an experience that points to or is related to a powerful goddess figure. My grandmother's experiences, I think, were Circuit 6 experiences. And these experiences lead us right into discussion of C.G. Young's archetypes. The following section lays out some groundwork for more far out and unique Circuit 6 and Circuit 7 activations and experiences. So please bear with me since the following will be somewhat academic in nature, maybe even more so than anything I've covered before in this talk. Jung's theory of the archetypes is often referenced in popular discourse. The idea has seeped into public consciousness. You'll hear mention of archetypes in writing, storytelling, and media circles. Archetypes are often said to be meaningful symbols with ancient origins. These are symbols that many people can relate to. They carry a lot of meaning in a simple package. But archetypes are commonly misunderstood. The true concept behind Jung's theory of archetypes, at least as I understand it, isn't really exactly easy to digest and definitely is not easy to describe in a brief fashion. But I'll give it a try because I have an ally in doing so and that is Marie-Louis von Franz, pictured here. She was C.G. Young's closest collaborator, and I think Young, as remarkable as he was, as much as a genius as I think he was, I found his writing just very difficult for me to read through and comprehend clearly. But her writing I can read for days. She organizes and explains key concepts and themes from Young's work in a way that I can understand but still feel like she hasn't really dumbed it down. Maybe she did, but it's just much clearer for me. So I'll now attempt to describe the basic outlines of Jung's theory of the archetypes with her help and also the help of a more contemporary figure. It's common to hear someone say that figures like medieval knights, sheriff, cowboys, Star Wars Jedis, Zulu warriors, and Japanese samurais are archetypes. Recently, I saw a BuzzFeed-like article on a psychology website offering a quiz to find out which archetype are you. This is a terribly incorrect understanding of Jung's theory of archetypes. These figures are archetypal symbolic representations. They're not actual archetypes. Now, this sounds like I'm being nitpicky, but this distinction is incredibly important to the discussion of Circuit 6 and Circuit 7. The best simple explanation of Jung's archetypes borrows heavily from writer-comedian Dan Harmon, co-creator of Rick and Morty. He wrote a story about it in a blog series called Story Structure. It goes something like this. Your mind is like a house. The part of the house that is above ground represents your conscious mind. These are the thoughts that you are aware of, your perception of yourself, and your perception of the world around you. This is where you live most of your waking life. 
It's the normal life of a human being. This is where you're most comfortable. There is also an aspect of the human mind that one isn't aware of, and this is called the unconscious. The unconscious mind is the basement, the underground portion of the house. You're not totally sure what's down there. It's dark and a little scary, and you don't want to deal with whatever is down there unless you have to. In the unconscious basement, there's a lot of activity happening that you aren't normally aware of. You have things like automated processes that run the body, hidden thought patterns, repressed emotions, repressed fantasies. The unconscious basement has a particular design and layout. These patterns are the archetypes. The archetypes are areas within the unconscious basement that carry a particular psychological power. Even though they're located in the dark unconscious basement, the archetypes pull our conscious attention to them. Archetypes are incredibly influential in our waking conscious life, but we're not usually noticing the fact that they're influencing our conscious awareness. The archetypes are like design blueprints for certain psychological experiences. And we all have a very similar layout in the unconscious basements of our minds. Because the unconscious is, well, unconscious, we can only experience the archetypes via symbolic representations of them upstairs in our conscious house. Each archetype is represented by a specific sort of symbolic image or mythological idea. It's kind of like this popular children's toy where only certain shapes fit a pattern. Similarly, only specific kinds of conscious images up in the house are a good match for a specific archetypal pattern within the unconscious down in the basement. When we encounter an archetype, it is via symbolic representations of that archetype. We never have a pure 100% direct experience of the archetypes. We encounter symbolic representations of the archetypes all the time. The most obvious encounters of archetypes are in art, regardless of the medium. The most obvious of the obvious encounters are in narrative media like books, films, television shows, and comic books. Jung argued that our dreams and daydreams are often filled with archetypal imagery. This is one thing he looked for when conducting dream analysis with his patients. Most of the archetypal symbolic representations we know are introduced to us from our culture as we grow up. Some representations have been in use by large groups of people for thousands and thousands of years. The American Wild West Cowboy, the Star Wars Jedi, the Medieval Knight, the Zulu Warrior, the Samurai Warrior, those are all cultural representations of an archetype that pretty much all humans can recognize. This is the archetype of the hero. And I'll repeat, these symbolic figures are not archetypes themselves, they're representations of an archetype. An archetype is full of psychological meaning and power to a human being's first-person experience. This is the case for all of us, regardless of our cultural upbringing. The archetypes will find some sort of representation in one's cultural upbringing to use to represent itself. It seems to me, and this is conjecture on my part, that my grandmother had at least two emotionally charged archetypal experiences when she was very ill. The frail state of her body led her awareness closer to her unconscious basement mind. And as she approached, she encountered the archetype of the great mother goddess, 
which expressed itself in two different symbolic representations. One was Mary, Mother of Jesus, Queen of Heaven, which she learned about as a devout Roman Catholic, but the other seems to have been Kali, which probably she didn't learn about from anyone. It was certainly not part of her culture. This is where Jung's theory of the collective unconscious kicks in. Jung thought all of our basements were connected somehow, creating a collective unconscious. Dan Harmon's house metaphor says this could be thought of as a system of pipes connecting all of our mind houses. We're not exactly sure how it works, but these connections are buried deep inside and somehow ancient archetypal representations that we've never consciously learned about show up in daydreams and dreams. Jung had countless examples of patients dreaming about deep esoteric symbols that they knew nothing about in their waking lives. And this has personally happened to me, so I can attest to how strange that can feel. So what are the archetypes? Like stripped of their symbolic imagery, what are they? No one knows. Jung at times speculated that archetypes are somehow part of one's genetic makeup, perhaps inherited from generation to generation through DNA. In a way, archetypes could be understood as the software that comes pre-installed in a new computer's operating system. These are pre-installed applications in our nervous system that cannot be deleted. They are part of the code that makes the whole human system run in the first place. Each of us has all of the archetypes pre-installed within us. And von Franz's take is that the archetypes can't ever really be studied via objective scientific methods. Because any scientist attempting to study the archetypes is themselves subject to the influence of unconscious archetypes. So there is zero objectivity possible. As Alan Watts would say, this is kind of like a knife's edge not being able to cut itself or a tooth that can't bite itself. Jung said that the archetypes always remain in the dark basement. They are never fully understood. Instead, it's better to try to understand and relate to the archetypes via their symbolic systems and representations. And we can attempt to understand whatever information we can get from them. Here are some examples of classic archetypal imagery and symbolism. You see this imagery and themes in art throughout all of recorded human history. Some archetypal events are birth, death, separation from parents, initiation, marriage, the union of opposites. Some archetypal figures are the great mother, father, child, devil, god, wise old man, wise old woman, the trickster, the hero. Some archetypal motifs or themes are the apocalypse, the deluge, the creation. Our conscious mind has zero control over what archetypal symbols will draw our conscious attention. The archetypes kind of do their own thing. And not only do the archetypes have their own independence, they pull attention sometimes dramatically. Archetypes aren't just ideas to think about, each archetype creates a particular experience for the person who encounters it. The archetypes activate images, emotions, and physical sensations within a person. Sometimes we live these representations out in the world. These images enthrall us. They capture us. The archetypes that attract your attention can be very different from the ones that attract my attention. Archetypal encounters are highly personal experiences. Sometimes you'll be attracted to one particular archetype for a period in your life, and then, later on, another. 
Often people only notice archetypal influences in their lives during moments of change, like a marriage or someone's death or a separation or a move to a new environment, a loss, a gain. Von Franz says, if you attempt to deal with terms like great mother in a purely theoretical way, without experiencing it for yourself firsthand, then you do not actually know what it is you're talking about. These encounters can bring you to tears, to fear, to feelings of love and unity, to laughter, to confusion, to a sense of clarity. One common pitfall is to think that you can know with any certainty what an archetype is truly all about. Let's say you're trying to interpret an archetypal dream image that moved you greatly. As much as our rational mind would like, there is simply no one final and correct interpretation to a dream. It is all totally subjective and very much personal to you. Von Franz notes that archetypal symbolic interpretation is never absolutely correct, but certainly it's possible to have an experience where the archetypes to a greater or lesser degree help you clarify or illuminate a matter that's been troubling you. Best is to focus on whether an interpretation of an archetypal encounter sheds light on an issue. That's the best we can hope for. That clarification has an enlivening effect and makes you feel more alive. But I don't want to make it seem like an encounter with the unconscious with the archetypes is a pleasurable or lovely experience all of the time. You don't have conscious control over what archetypal imagery and representations you will encounter. What is awaiting for you in the unconscious may be something you want to avoid and perhaps it might be downright terrifying. But the consequences of avoiding and ignoring the world of the unconscious and the archetypes is probably worse. Jung and von Franz warned that a person can easily become obsessed and sort of possessed by an archetype. This happens especially when we're not aware of the archetypes and their influence. As von Franz puts it, archetypes often create intense, emotionally laden fantasies or ideas which take possession of the whole personality and motivates psychologically and drives it in a certain direction. In other words, these mysterious unconscious forces can take over our lives if we're not careful. This can happen in many different contexts. I'll talk about some examples. Many of us can instantly relate to the powerful experience of what we call falling in love. Quoting from archetypalspirituality.org, falling in love is an archetypal event. We can fall in love with people we do not even like. The process of falling in love can be intoxicating and we can equally fall out of love when we no longer project the archetypal feminine or masculine onto our partner." End quote. If this experience has happened to you, you probably have no doubt in how powerful it can really be. This infatuation state is highly influential over one's behavior. One can't think straight. So again, in Jungian terms, it's possession. Let's go through some other more exotic examples. Here in the middle is an Eskimo tribal medicine man dressed as an entity for a ritual in 1890. We know that since prehistory, native medicine people around the globe let themselves get taken over by spirits and even wear full costumes in order to embody these archetypal representations. This is similar to the experience that many Christians have of speaking in tongues and being taken over by the Holy Spirit. 
In secular non-religious society, if a person is taken over by an archetype, unexpected and even tragic results can follow. People can become so obsessed with a fictional character, a celebrity, a political leader, or a religious figure that they give their entire life to that person in total submission. There are countless examples of this, but here are some interesting examples to drive the point home. Herbert Chavez has had 16 years worth of nose jobs, skin whitening, liposuction, jaw realignment, pec implants, and abdominal implants to become a real-life Clark Kent. Anthony Lafredo has transformed himself into a creature through various medical procedures. He's covered his body with tattoos and piercings. In Japan, there's the phenomenon of idol worship. This is a subculture where adult men become totally obsessed with young female performers that are worshipped as if they were religious deities. Some of these men abandon all responsibilities to focus on their idol worship. This is an extreme and more disturbing version of a phenomenon that many of us are now familiar with, popular culture fandom. A pretty obvious example of this is Star Wars. George Lucas, the creator of Star Wars, consciously used archetypal representations when crafting his characters and his stories. Many believe this is why Star Wars has been so powerfully influential around the globe. On the top right here is a popular YouTuber who recently broke down into tears when he saw the return of a key character that he says meant the world to him. And he's not alone. I probably watched 20 videos with people breaking down in that same way. Millions of people wear Star Wars clothing and own Star Wars products, including many who treat the characters like religious icons. Thousands of people attend the Star Wars Celebration Convention each year, and it's been pointed out that the atmosphere feels like a religious cult. In fact, some people have listed Jedi as their formal, actual religion. Taking the phenomenon of group possession in a more ominous direction, one of Young's strongest warnings was against group possession, particularly in the political sphere. This is a crowd on the bottom right of German Nazis. The consequences can be utterly horrific as they were in the Holocaust. Jung said that Hitler was the, quote, unconscious of 78 million Germans, end quote. This man represented an archetypal hero figure to millions of people, and he tapped into their inner desires to make real his and their hero story. They wanted to create an archetypal heaven on earth and needed to behave in atrocious ways in order to accomplish this vision. There have been many men like this before and since Hitler, and I think Jung was right, possession is a danger to all of humanity. Since I've laid out some groundwork and things have gotten pretty serious, I want to have a little fun and go back to the subject of making contact with extrasensory intelligences. Starting on the left, you have an image from the classic film Harvey starring Jimmy Stewart. In the film, a large magical rabbit appears and communicates with the lead character. Robert Anton Wilson was really surprised by this film when it came on TV in Ireland, where he lived for several years. It's a long story, which he tells in his book Cosmic Trigger, but I can say there were several meaningful correspondences between his personal life and this film. For a period of time, he believed he was in contact with some extrasensory intelligence, this film made him consider whether that intelligence was in fact the puka, a giant mythological rabbit believed to appear to people in Ireland. A giant rabbit that was quite similar to the rabbit in this film. Next to the rabbit here you'll see a little green man. 
Wilson encountered this green man outside when working on his lawn a day after he took the psychedelic LSD. This is Mescalito, a vegetation spirit talked about by some Native American tribes. Encountering such entities is not uncommon for psychedelic users. Above here in the tree is Eddie Linehan. Eddie documents and tells Irish fairy stories. These aren't fairies like Disney's Tinkerbell. Classic Irish fairies are dangerous supernatural beings. It's best not to mess with them. To this day, locals stay clear of fairy forts to avoid misfortune. These entities will supposedly abduct you and will enchant you or both. Next to Eddie, you have a depiction of gnomes. A friend of mine, a rather worldly guy and not a believer in esoteric things, took the psychedelic psilocybin once and was surprised to see little gnomes that look like smurfs frolicking in the park. It turns out that gnomes are encountered quite often by people during outdoor psychedelic trips. These encounter experiences with folk entities have similar features to the more modern phenomenon of alien visitation and abduction. I'm sure down below here in the middle you'll recognize the classic gray aliens reported by Whitley Strieber in the 1980s and many others since. This smiling fellow next to the gray alien is Terence McKenna, who in his own way is a gray alien himself. Online he's a well-known psychedelic and hippie cultural icon. He's popularized the use of the powerful psychedelic drug DMT and he reported encounters with elves and other intelligent beings. He often would engage in days-long psychedelic trips where he'd enter discussions with disembodied intelligences about the nature of reality. He inspired many to follow in his footsteps and have their own encounters with Circuit 6 entities. Further to the top right uh, is John C. Lilly, who I first mentioned at the beginning of Circuit 6. He was the guy who coined the term interterrestrial beings. He was the inventor and popularizer of the sensory deprivation float tank. This is a tank in which you float in body temperature, salt water, and near total darkness and silence. The idea is to feel like you have no body and are floating in space. These tanks can be found in most major cities, usually in spa-like relaxation centers. Lily's purpose for using them was pretty far from spa-like relaxation. He would float for hours and hours on end often high on strong hallucinogenic drugs, initially LSD and then ketamine, which he'd come to have an addictive and harmful relationship to. Lily in many ways lost his mind in that tank, but boy did he write some fascinating books based on what he learned in there. He attempted to categorize different states of beings he encountered in the tank, and he documented communication with intraterrestrial, extraterrestrial intelligences in a fairly methodical fashion. Unfortunately, despite the attempt at science, Lily's work never came to much more than the eccentric ravings of a very intelligent drug addict. And at the bottom right corner you have author Philip K. Dick. This is a cover for his book, Ballas. PKD, as some like to call him, is now known as the most influential writer of science fiction in the past half century. There is no doubt about it, the man was brilliant in many ways, but he was also a man with massive personal demons. PKD was an artist who stated that his writing was channeled from somewhere else. He lived with a very active C5 and C6 
seeing deep, meaningful coincidences, symbolic relationships and themes in his daily life. Between February and March 1974, he had a series of Circuit 6 experiences where he felt that some external intelligence had beamed vast amounts of knowledge into his mind. He saw a strange pink light and began to experience a double life as a second century Christian rebel. This historical experience was overlaid on top of his modern day current life. So it was like he was living two lives at once. PKD began mostly through hypnagogic states to hear a voice, a voice that he realized he had heard years before while he was in college. This was a presence that he called the Vast Active Living Intelligence System, or VALIS for short. He spent the rest of his short life trying to understand what happened to him and what, if anything, was trying to communicate to him in early 1974. For me, it's clear that all of these far out experiences that I just went through were in fact encounters with the archetypes in various representative forms. Now, I've referred to C.G. Young quite a lot so far because he's created a body of work that allows us to understand Circuit 6 without getting lost in too much New Age woo-woo or weird mystical nonsense. Many people, including myself, believe he was a genius on par with some of the greatest thinkers of the last several hundred years. And as mentioned before, Young was a very well-known founder of modern psychology. He was even considered a sort of celebrity in his time. But he lived a double life, which he describes in his memoirs. There was a number one personality, the extroverted, respectable public figure, and there was his number two personality, the secret introverted mystic. This number two personality explored the depths of his own unconscious and he sought out direct dialogue with the archetypal representations in his unconscious. Jung privately chronicled his experiences with a technique he called active imagination. He would spend evenings in silence exploring fantastical environments and contacting entities within his own imagination. Author Peter Kingsley, known mostly for his work on mystical and ancient Greek philosophers, wrote a book on Jung called Catafalque here on the right. Kingsley argues that Jung was more like a prophetic biblical figure than most people realize. Kingsley argues that the rational scientific Jung known to the world was a cover. This cover allowed him to continue his mystical work without being too publicly shamed about it. The real C.G. Jung, according to Kingsley, was a prophetic figure who brought back knowledge about the depths of the unconscious from the depths of the unconscious. In other words, Jung went down into the basement and came back up without completely losing his mind like John C. Lilly or Philip K. Dick did. Early in his career, Jung made a name for himself by insisting that schizophrenics should be listened to. Regardless of how ridiculous their fantasies and visions sounded, Jung recommended that psychologists attempt to understand their inner logic and the symbolism behind the hallucinations and the fantasies of the mentally ill. He found that imagery and themes brought up by schizophrenics were consistent with classical mythology, mythology that patients never learned of consciously. When visiting the depths of his own unconscious fantasies, Jung would converse and interact with Philemon, a figure he first encountered in a dream. 
This is a figure that shares a name with a real-life first-century Christian and shares a name with a character that features in two books that had a great impact on Jung, one of them being Faust. Philemon was not the only entity that Jung encountered during explorations into his fantasies, but certainly the most impactful. He wrote, Philemon and other figures of my fantasies brought home to me the crucial insight that there are things in the psyche which I do not produce, but which produce themselves and have their own life. At times, Philemon seemed to me to be quite real, as if he were a living personality. Jung painted Philemon on several occasions. Here are some examples. In the top picture, you'll find the winged Philemon holding a ring of keys in one hand and a single key in the other. Jung said, I understood that there was something in me which can say things that I do not know and do not intend, things which may be directed against me. I went walking up and down the garden with Philemon, and to me, he was what the Indians call a guru. Jung wasn't the only figure who brought back transformative knowledge after encounters with the archetypes. A strange yet compelling point that writer Peter Kingsley makes in his work is that foundational concepts underlying civilization were channeled by people, usually mystics and prophets, but sometimes political and scientific leaders. Kingsley writes that the role of the prophet is someone whose job is to speak on behalf of a greater power, on behalf of someone or something else. The rational logic of materialist science and the world's major religions and philosophies all have their origin in Circuit 6 communication with archetypal entities. The mythical Taoist Zhuangzi, the butterfly dream guy, said, men honor what lies within the sphere of their knowledge but do not realize how dependent they are on what lies beyond their knowledge. I'll share some examples of scientific and philosophical knowledge transfer experiences. There's the case of Ramanujan, a young Indian man living in poverty who found a mathematics textbook. Working in isolation, Ramanujan was able to re-derive 100 years of Western mathematics on his own. He credited his work to the divine providence of Mahalakshmi, a goddess. He said that he dreamed that he was presented with scrolls of complex mathematical work in front of his eyes by her male consort. There's the case of the pre-Socratic philosopher Parmenides. Peter Kingsley writes extensively about Parmenides, who was one of the earliest ancient Greek philosophers. He is known as the father of metaphysics and arguably the father of Western logic, since he is the first in the historical record to use deductive arguments to justify his claims. Parmenides wrote that he received these ideas from meeting a goddess during a visit to the underworld. There's the case of Pascal. Pascal was a prodigy who is considered a founder of modern mathematical theory. He also made notable contributions to the fields of physics, theology, and philosophy. Pascal had a powerful vision one night. He wrote about his experience and kept the account in his vest pocket for the rest of his life. This was discovered by others after his death. It read, From about half past ten at night until half past midnight, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and of the learned, certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace, God of Jesus Christ, righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. Joy, 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 tears of joy. End quote. After this experience, Pascal 
became strongly religious. He went on to scribe the Pensies, an influential philosophical and religious document. And finally, there's the case of René Descartes. Descartes has often been called the father of modern philosophy. He's the man who gave us the famous words, I think, therefore I am. On the night of November 10th, 1619, he had three dreams which changed the course of his life and Western history. In the third dream, a stranger told him a poem and he was presented with two books. The stranger disappeared and Descartes concluded he was a messenger from God. After this experience, he came to believe that the dreams were telling him that the pursuit of reason and truth were his destiny. As shown with Pascal, circuit six activations happen within a religious context. And often the details of strong circuit six activations are hard to separate from religious overtones. On the left is a African medicine man. Native medicine people are the first religious figures in the historical record. The role of medicine person can still be found in native cultures around the globe. They conduct rituals to enter altered states of awareness that they call spirit realms. These rituals are mostly comprised of music, dancing and straining the body and physically through fasting and, and other methods. Some medicine people use psychedelic plant medicines, but some don't. Native medicine people around the globe often report that they encounter entities in these spirit realms. If they do have such an encounter, the medicine worker's responsibility is to interpret and share what they've learned from that entity. It's believed that putting this knowledge to use fosters healing for individuals and the community as a whole. Classical divination is often thought of as fortune telling, but it can actually be better understood as a method for human communication with the divine. Here's a photo of the traditional Chinese divination practice, the I Ching. You'll see some coins and some yarrow sticks there. Chinese divination is thought to have started in prehistory and is still practiced to date. The ancient Greek ruling class made few major decisions without consulting oracles, such as the oracle at Delphi, pictured above the, the I Ching. Key figures from major world religions can be said to have had powerful circuit six activations. Some examples are Zarathustra, the prophet who started the first major monotheistic religious movement in the historical record, the Jewish prophets in the Torah and the Christian Old Testament. There are several stories of entities communicating with key players within the Christian narrative, Mary, the mother of Jesus and her husband, Joseph, and several others spoke to angels. Mary Magdalene and the Apostles encountered a disembodied Christ on several occasions after the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth. St. Paul, who apparently never met Jesus of Nazareth in the flesh, communicated with Christ in a vision that changed the course of his life and the next 2,000 years of world history. In Islam, the Quran was recited to the Prophet Muhammad by the Archangel Gabriel. So what's going on here? There is in fact a theory that can provide a relatively reasonable explanation for circuit six within the parameters of, of science. Princeton psychologist Julian Jaynes published his groundbreaking book, The Origin of Consciousness in the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind in 1976. It's a remarkable and controversial work that some argue has been mostly proven wrong. The Julian Jane Society disagree. They have, in my personal opinion, refuted the refutations of Jane's work, 
quite well. A lot of people think Jane's ideas are sound. Jane's argues that at some point in the history of civilization around early Greek times, an ability started to develop in many people. This was the ability to introspect, as well as the tendency for a person to think of themselves as an individual with an internal world and a unique personal history. For Jane's, prior to about 1500 BC, people did not possess self-consciousness the way we do now. He argued that people did not have the sense of introspection and identity that we have now. The Circuit 3 story of me, that we all take for granted, wasn't activated in most people. Their motivation for acting in the world wasn't a story of me in their mind, or a sense of personal history, or a potential future for themselves and others. Instead, they lived their lives with what Jane's called a bicameral mind. The motivation for action in the world was obeying auditory hallucinations like those of modern-day schizophrenics and some of the examples I discussed earlier in this section. People back then, according to Jane's, based their actions on what the voices would tell them to do. And these voices had the authority of divinity, which is an experience that modern-day schizophrenics are very familiar with. So a child back then would have a helpful imaginary friend who would grow up with them, eventually turning into their own personal gods. These personal gods ordered people to act, often through these hallucinations or sometimes through priests or kings. Jane's theory was that the hallucinatory voices were often of those who died recently, especially people who had social authority, like recently deceased kings or priests. For Jane's, this was the basis of divine king worship that was prevalent in the world at the time. Now, this could sound pretty ridiculous. How could people who achieved amazing things like the Sumerian civilization and the early Egyptian empires do so without self-consciousness? Well, Jane says that for the most part, such minds would actually live their day-to-day -day lives in a fairly straightforward way, not too different from how we live. They react to their environment, they problem solve through the day, but when something unexpected happened, something stressful, instead of experiencing a period of introspection, self-reflective thoughts, and deliberation like we do, the person would simply receive a command hallucination instructing them on how to act, and they obeyed because these hallucinations seemed divine and powerful. Sometime around 1500 BC, Jane said, cities started becoming so large and diverse that introspection, individual identity, and the story of me became essential tools for navigating social structures. For a long period of time, some people would still hear voices and they were appreciated. These were the prophets, the oracles, the inspired poets of antiquity. But over time, that trait became less valuable and thus less and less appreciated by most people. There is actually some real science behind Jane's ideas. Here's a diagram of the brain. As you can see, there is a left hemisphere and a right hemisphere. This is called brain lateralization. Generally speaking, the right hemisphere is responsible for the motor and visual functions of the left side of the body and the left hemisphere of the brain is responsible for the motor and visual functions of the right side of the body. There are also specialized areas in each hemisphere 
that oversee specific functions in the body. There are many misconceptions about brain lateralization. There is a popular idea that the left hemisphere is only responsible for processing logic, facts, speech, and rational thinking, and that the right hemisphere is only responsible for processing creativity, music, art, and abstract thinking. There is a common misconception that some people are left-brained and some people are right-brained. This is not a black and white matter, it's a gray matter. Yet, there is undoubtedly some hemisphere specialization. It's just important to know that hemispheres do work together, and the way they work together can function different in different people. For example, language and speech processing areas in the brain are confined to the left hemisphere for 90% of the population that is right-handed and most of the population on the globe is right-handed. But language and speech processing areas is much more bilateral or even right-lateralized in approximately 50% of left-handers. The two hemispheres are connected by bundles of fibers called commissures, of which the larger is the corpus callosum. This is an image of the corpus callosum. Information from each hemisphere is transferred to the other so that there can be coordination between the two hemispheres. When this is cut, and it has been in experiments, which is gross, the left brain and the right brain were observed to operate very independently. They even seemed to react to each other as if they were two partners in one body. It was observed that the right hemisphere can elicit behaviors without the left hemisphere being aware. Here's a diagram of the brain from the front view as opposed to the top down like the previous images. Hallucinations, Jane suggests, are produced by the normally silent right hemisphere of the brain. The theory goes that the right hemisphere sends communication signals to the left hemisphere. The left hemisphere receives these communication signals and processes the signals as coming from an independent entity. Because, as I just mentioned, in some ways, the usually silent right brain is in fact an independent entity in some respects. And this aspect of Jane's theory is now backed up by neuroscience. Neurosurgeon Wilder Penfield electrically stimulated right hemispheres of patients that were kept awake during brain surgery. The brain does not feel pain, which allowed the patients to report their experiences consciously to researchers. When Penfield stimulated the right hemispheres of these patients, they reported hallucinations. These hallucinations tended to be authoritative voices, sometimes of people unknown to the patients, sometimes of people known to the patients, often a dead relative or friend. The hallucinations were consistently understood to be someone other than the patient. The voices could criticize, advise, or command the patient. Sometimes voices were accompanied by music, chanting, or singing. Other studies have shown that brainwave recordings of schizophrenics showed that there is a lot more right hemisphere activity than in non-schizophrenics. In 1999, research showed that the right hemispheres of schizophrenics would increase glucose use during hallucinations. And lastly, there is evidence from an autopsy study of a small number of long-term schizophrenics showing that their corpus callosum was significantly thicker than in normal people, suggesting that the left hemisphere of these schizophrenics had access to more right hemisphere signals than in non-schizophrenics. 
All of that scientific evidence provides some backing to the fundamental workings of Jane's theory. This is a photo of him holding a brain, by the way, or a model of a brain. He thought that schizophrenics were individuals who were operating with a brain operating system that is not appropriate for modern society. It was the previous operating system used by our ancient ancestors. For Jaynes, the origin of religion, philosophy, and artistic inspiration lies in a form of communication from the right hemisphere to the left hemisphere of the brain, a form of communication that is not fully appreciated by modern day society. Hallucinations, inspiration, creativity, as well as religious and mystical experiences are most probably produced in the silent speech areas of the right hemisphere of the brain. These signals are then sent over to the left hemisphere, and the left hemisphere translates these signals according to circuit 3 maps of the world. These are maps that we've learned throughout our life. This is why the same kind of experience can be understood in such radically different ways by different people. For Terence McKenna, it's a hyperdimensional machine elf. For Whitley Strieber, it's a gray alien. For the Irish, it's a fairy or a giant magical rabbit. And consider Paul McCartney, who I've mentioned a few times already. He's left-handed. Could it be that his right brain and left brain are communicating in a way unique from most modern-day people? Is this why he's created some of the most notable music in the past century? According to the Jane Society, some researchers speculate that Jung's concept of the unconscious may be equated with the right hemisphere. Jane said, quote, The gods were organizations of the central nervous system and can be regarded as persons. End quote. It is plausible to suppose that archetypes are like the file format that the right brain uses to send these unique communication signals to the left brain. This would provide a scientific basis for the, how the archetypes are inherited from person to person. They're pre-installed in our right hemisphere like operating software. This would also provide a scientific basis for the collective unconscious. We all have the same or incredibly similar right hemisphere operating software. So even though our left brain programming is unique, the right brain programming is pretty standard throughout the species. I find this to be quite compelling and it satisfies my circuit 3 need to have some notion of a scientific or relatively rational respectable theory about all of these strange experiences that people have with extrasensory intelligences. But none of this negates the first person experience of the archetypes. Think of it this way, you can be given a set of instructions on how to bake a cake. You can learn all about the chemical reactions that transform the ingredients into a cake. But the taste of your favorite cake is a subjective first-person experience. In the same way, the archetypes cannot be simply explained away by neuroscience. Because if you happen to come in contact with the representations firsthand, there is no doubting from a subjective first-person point of view that you're interacting with something that doesn't fit into our modern-day consensus view of the world. And that's what we're going to cover next. By the way, this is a painting of Jung encountering archetypal entities in the unconscious. <laughs>